So it is no secret that on Nightmares on the Lost Highway, we like to talk about monsters and things like that and hauntings and, and whatnot. And it's also no secret that we're fans of like interview with a vampire. Blood sucking vampires. You know, I will go so far as to say that, that at least for a little while I went through a goth phase and, and to be honest, probably watched interview with a vampire almost every day for some reason. I, I'm <laughs> During our hundredth episode, we both declared interview with the vampire yeah. was like our, one of our favorite movies. I still love that movie. Uh, I was thinking about it just the other day. I, I saw a little bit of, of a, New Orleans architecture, and it was that house on the corner, yep. and, and I was like, man, look at that. That's just... Uh, but anyway, there was a story back in the 70s in London surrounding the Highgate Cemetery. Now, London is no stranger to vampires, mm-hmm. as Count Dracula himself, you know, was once walked those streets fictionally, but there's a potential that a real vampire plagued the region in, in the, the 60s and 70s, and, and we're going to talk about the Highgate Vampire. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I was going to say Highgate Cemetery, because I think it's a little of both. I don't know that yeah, so there much. Yeah, some of them, it's, it's questionable if but it was a There's definitely some there's ghost a, stuff. There's a ghost, there's a skeleton kind of thing. So... Now, I first became aware of the Highgate Vampire again. I went through a vampire phase, and I have a book, which I, I should probably bring in and show you someday. Uh, it's probably six inches thick. Oh, wow. A tome. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a good-sized book. It's like an encyclopedia-sized book, simply called The Vampire Book. I've read the book cover to cover, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and it is basically, more than once. basically an encyclopedia of vampire knowledge to that point. So this was mid nineties. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't cover anything that came after that, but it talks about no like, vampires with glitter. No, oh, absolutely not. Okay. But it does talk about, you know, like all the old vampire legends and stuff. And then it talks about, you know, interview with a vampire, you know, all the vampire fiction blade and things like that. But one story I found pretty interesting that kind of stuck with me was the Highgate vampire. Now the Highgate vampire got into my mind so much that I actually used the idea in a Vampire the Masquerade campaign one time. That's awesome. So my my players were pitted against the Highgate Vampire. Yeah, the, the whole story and intrigue and mystery, not really knowing the origins of, of this proclaimed vampire, it is very alluring, I guess well, is, is the way to put it. It just it kind of comes out of nowhere. Like I guess the cemetery had a history of being haunted. And and when we talk about like there's definitely I'm, some of the things we're going to relate here are definitely more ghostly than vampiric. But then you have like the story of Louisa, who is definitely, that's a vampire story. If, if you ever heard one, mm-hmm. uh, then there's an, there's another one with with a young woman who was apparently being attacked in the night. So uh, there's some vampire S stuff. Now, whether it's one vampire or multiple vampires, again, Louisa, you know, that that's a whole thing, but there's definitely a lot of ghostly activity in, Believe it or not, like this whole story almost culminates in a wizard's duel. 
Yes. Very Which Harry Potter is the craziest thing. Uh, some of the people that get involved in this, I mean, it's just by the end of it, I, you know, this is such a weird story. So, and when uh, they're talking about the, the Highgate Cemetery, obviously I've never been there. I'd love to, but I'm in, I envision like New Orleans and the old cemetery out of interview with a vampire and just, you know, that foggy night with the footsteps following you wow. as you walk by. And, you know, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, similar, but like a Victorian London with, you know, trees and hills and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm imagining it's at least again, you know, I, I'm a, that, that classic haunted graveyard. So, um, I know you said you had a couple of very, very early tales. If you wanted to go ahead and start there. One of the earliest, uh, tales that I stumbled across in doing research was, uh, one that per- took place at about 8 PM on a, a July evening in 1965. Uh, Brian Bourne was walking his dog uh, before heading out to a party. Now, as he passed the western gate of the cemetery, Bourne said he felt a sudden chill and this unnatural stillness. Uh, like the wind and the trees, everything just stopped, no birds, no, no insects. Bourne said that he saw this black liquid substance flowing down the cemetery wall. Then a tall masculine shape materialized out of this liquid he said it almost, as it hit the ground, kind of turned into a fog-like mistance. Uh, he said that the figure appeared to be a man wearing dark clothes and had glowing red eyes. Now, Bourne's dog growled at the apparition, and Bourne ran up the street. Yeah. Now, this was documented in a uh, 1997 issue of Highgate Vampire Society's newsletter, uh, Suspended in Dusk. Uh, he states in that a little bit more information. There was no face where eyes would have been as if it were human. There were just two glowing red pits. This wasn't a ghost. This was an entity, and it simply was not human. Now, if you're familiar with the Vampire the Masquerade, the La Sombra vampires control shadow and can move about in a liquid shadow form, I believe. See, the liquid form really threw me off. I mean, obviously, fog, mist, you know, bats. I've heard all this, but a liquid black ooze. I've, I've heard it. I, I hadn't. That but was new to me. Again, that's pop culture. It's Vampire the Masquerade. So. I've never played that game. I Sorry. want to. Sorry, Eric. Bring up a sore subject. <laughs> you know, we go up a couple of years, 1967. There was a young couple walking past the same spot as Born. Uh, they saw a figure with an unpleasant face standing by the gate staring at them. They stopped and looked back, and the figure slowly disappeared. Now, Thomas O'Laughlin, who was the man of the couple, he decided he was going to return the next night with a friend. And they went inside Highgate Cemetery and said they heard an odd booming noise and witnessed a shadowy figure pass in front of them. And they did what any two good red-blooded, well, red-blooded British fellows, I guess. British fellows. Are they blue-blooded in, in England? I'm um, not sure. But anyway, they fled Let from the know. scene and never went back. Uh, also, two young girls that same year claimed to see the dead rising from their grave near Highgate's northern gate. Now, one of these girls was named Elizabeth, and her last name was Dila. Uh, and she later said after her experience that she began to have terrifying nightmares after that. And in 1967, she spoke with Sean Manchester. Now, Manchester's a name that comes up quite often in the Highgate vampire lore. There's Manchester and there's Ferent, and they're both involved, and apparently both mystic, mystics of some sort. Um, I didn't get into a whole lot of detail about their background, but I do have some of their interactions and their involvement here in Highgate. 
Now, this one of the young girls I had, uh, she felt that something was cold and clingy. That's that was a different story. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's a different story. That's okay. uh, so. Anyway, in 1967, she speaks with Manchester, and he had begun investigating the Highgate vampire at this point, and said she dreamt of an entity with a cadaverous appearance and malevolent presence, and that this entity would try to break into her room at night. Now, she also complained of sleepwalking, dizziness, nausea, and headaches, and she herself could be described as pale and cadaverous, which, you know, others around her had noticed a change in her complexion. Kind of zombie-ish? Vampire-ish? So Elizabeth's boyfriend come, comes back to Manchester later on. And he says, hey, man, she's been under a doctor's care, but she's not getting any better. She's still pale. She's still sick. She's not herself. Uh, and, and they believed at that point in time they had found two puncture wounds in her neck. Ooh. So Manchester comes back, and he provides her with a crucifix and garlic to hang around the bedroom. And according to Manchester himself, she regained her health shortly thereafter. Hmm. Now, another teenage girl awoke one night claiming that there was something cold and clingy on her hand that had left prominent marks in the morning. Another reports speak of a tall man in a hat walking about the area yes. before melting through the cemetery melting walls. Melting through the cemetery walls. So again, you have the melting and the disappearance and the, you know, some of this is definitely ghostly. Mm -hmm. It seems like a haunting, an apparition. But then again, you know, the, 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 the fully formed figure that appeared before uh, Mr. Bourne in the, in the, you know, by the cemetery or, or, you know, Elizabeth's story. I mean, there's definitely that element of there, there was there a vampire in the cemetery coming after people. Right. Often described as well-dressed with a hat, you know, the very typical stereotypical. Now, during that same time frame, 67 to 68, the rumors of these stories were fueled by claims of several small animals, squirrels, cats, dogs, yep. etc. Corpses were found drained of all of their blood with lacerations around their throat area. Now, some of that would be chalked up to cult activity, cultists and whatnot. Uh, I know in, on October 31st, 1968, a group of young people who were interested in the occult visited, visited Tottenham Park Cemetery at a time when it was regularly being vandalized. Now, according to the London Evening News, November 2nd, 1968, these persons arranged flowers taken from graves in circular patterns with arrows of blooms pointing to a new grave which was uncovered. A coffin was opened and the body inside disturbed, but their most macabre act was driving an iron stake in the form of a cross through the lid and into the breast of the corpse. Although the identities of those involved were never found out, many at the time linked these events to those surrounding the Highgate vampire case. So even, you know, adjoining stories would, would kind of get pulled into this whole deal. Yeah, and I hate to hear that, that the vandalism of cemeteries, I mean, you know, they've been doing that for years. That is such a shame, but I've said it before. I will go back to the immortal words of our friend Mark Wilson on some of our own cemetery paranormal <laughs> investigations, and we were questioned, what are, you, what are you folks doing here? And his words was, I promise we will take nothing but photographs and leave nothing but fingerprints. Well, yeah, I hate the idea of vandalism in general, and that's not to say that as a child, as a younger person, I didn't do stupid things from time to time. But yeah, just vandalize, especially sacred places. Yes, churches, graves, cemeteries, yeah. In a letter to the Hampstead and Highgate Express on February 6th, 1970, David Ferrant, who was another guy who will come in, you know, this story quite often. Self-proclaimed magician. Yeah. He wrote that when passing Highgate Cemetery on December 24th, 1969, that he had seen a gray figure, 
Now, this gray figure would become the central part of a lot of stories, but he considered the figure to be supernatural, and he asked if anyone else had seen something similar. On the 13th, several people had replied, describing a variety of ghosts said to haunt the cemetery, and also the adjoining Swain's Lane. Ghosts were described as, and I have a list here, a tall man in a hat. Check. A spectral cyclist. Check. A woman in white. Check. A face glaring through the bars of the gate. Creepy. Check. A figure wading into a pond. Weird. Check. A pale gliding form. Yep, yep. Bells ringing and voices calling. Okay. We're going to say it's haunted. Yeah. <laughs> so Manchester gets involved at this point. He claims Ferrant's gray figure is a vampire. And of course, the media being the media, they quickly latch onto this. And they punch up the story claiming the vampire was a king of all vampires. Or that the vampire was practicing black magic, which... Isn't it enough just to have a vampire? Yeah, I mean, you why you got to dial it up like that? The king of all well, vampires or whatever. Uh, I just, I didn't understand certain parts of the story, I have to be honest. Uh, like you said, it, all throughout this time, several you know local animals, I think foxes were, were also yes. notable. But throughout this whole time period of the 60s and 70s, they find these little animals all over the place drained of blood. You yeah. know, and, and like you said, some of them had lacerations on their throat, so. And it was... They never said uh, bite marks. It said lacerations, yeah, lacerations, which again, kind of to your point, it led me to believe like a knife or, or something like that. Now, again, as if these descriptions weren't enough, uh, noteworthy, there were also some other descriptions of ghouls and spirits. One was of an elderly woman uh, who presumed looked to be looking for her lost children in the cemetery. The story was some of the children had wandered into the cemetery, as children do, and never came back out of the gate. So this elderly woman had spent her entire life looking for her lost children. And now for some reason, her ghost was, you know, basically captured inside that cemetery. There was another of a, what was described as a skeletal figure. We're not talking a gray skinned or zombie. We're talking like straight out of Pirates of the Caribbean kind of style skeletal, uh, who seemed to guard the main gate entrance in particular uh, not that he would stop anyone from coming in, but basically give you a head nod, possibly even open the gate for you or close it on you once you came into the cemetery. You know, got to F that, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Hey, come on in. Nope. Come on in. No, I don't need the skeleton boy telling me to show up at the cemetery. Um, so sometime in the early parts of 1970, Manchester is contacted at this point about a woman named Louisa. Now, he goes and visits, and Louisa said she had felt like someone was suffocating her at night, and she had herself started to sleepwalk, and supposedly two puncture wounds had been found on her neck. So during one sleepwalking episode, uh, her sister Anne calls Manchester, and the two of them get together, and they follow Louisa to Highgate Cemetery, where Louisa enters through a broken railing, and she walks about the cemetery. Now, at one point in time, she stops in front of, uh, and I'm not sure the proper name for it, I want to say mausoleum. But one of the big, you know, places where they have a lot of bodies, I think mm -hmm. mausoleum might be. I think that's the correct term. But she stops in front of a particular mausoleum and rips the crucifix from her neck. And at this point in time, they hear a loud booming sound from inside that mausoleum. And then Louisa collapses. Now that booming sound you had referenced in another yeah. story earlier on. So they run up, they grab her, and they take her home. And when she wakes up, she says she can't remember anything at all from that night. Like she was not involved. She wasn't herself. Uh, now, at this point in time, there, there's increasing publicity about this story, the, the Highgate Vampire, and this was enhanced by the growing rivalry between Ferrant and Manchester, <laughs> each claiming that they could either expel or destroy the gray figure. 
And so Manchester declares that he's going to hold an exorcism on Friday the 13th. Why not? 19, or Friday the 13th, March 1970. So there are interviews with Manchester and Ferrant and others who claim they've seen the figures. And these interviews are, are transmitted early in the evening of the 13th. Within two hours, a mob of quote-unquote hunters from all over London and beyond are surrounding Highgate. Now, they've got police there. And it's a locked cemetery yeah, it's a locked cemetery. Point. It's night. It, if you go there, you'd be trespassed. So the police are there to stop them, right? Well, despite all efforts, you know, the, these, these hunters, they storm the cemetery. They overwhelm the police. They get through the gates. Climb the walls. They climb over the walls. Yeah, they're, they're, they get into this locked cemetery, defeating all efforts to stop them. I have down that they were stocked with vials of holy water, hammers, pitchforks, as well as wooden yeah. and iron yes. stakes. So after storming the cemetery, many of them would come running back out. <laughs> uh, so many claim to have seen something crawling in the dark. One Mr. Anthony Robinson recalled, I walked past the place and heard a high-pitched noise, and then I saw something gray moving slowly across the road, and it terrified me. I've never believed in anything like this, and I'm sure now that there's evil lurking in Highgate. So these guys, you know, they went in all, all ballsy. And, they fueled and, the fire yeah, and came uh, out with their tails between their legs. Yeah. So a couple months later, on August 1st, 1970, two schoolgirls stumble across the remains of a 100-year-old corpse. Charred and headless, the remains of a woman's body were found near a catacomb, and the police suspect that it had been used in the practice of black magic. So Ferrant was once again found by police at some point in August in a churchyard besides the cemetery carrying a crucifix and a wooden stake. He was arrested, but the case was dismissed when it finally went to court. Yeah, I'm sure some of these, like the judges and stuff, is like, I'm tired of this yeah, crap. Yeah, they're probably tired of dealing we with these We have other things to do, yeah. A few days later, Manchester returns to Highgate, and he claims that he, is his, he and his companions forced open the doors to a family vault, indicated by his psychic companion, and there they lifted the lid off of a coffin, believing it to have been transferred there from a previous catacomb. He was about to drive a stake through the body therein, but his companion persuaded him to stop. So, reluctantly... Manchester decides to shut the coffin and then just leave garlic and incense in the vault to protect those, you know, from evil. Hmm. Now, again, more publicity surrounds Front and Manchester. These guys are involved heavily in the whole deal. They're both mystics of some deal. I can't remember. I think one of them eventually becomes a member of the church and, and becomes a bishop. Uh, and, and actually, one of these gentlemen died just a few years ago uh, at like 75 or something like that. Uh, Front, I believe. Yeah. So, died in April of 2019. So, I mean, these guys were still kind of, I, I believe his, his death warranted a whole article in the newspaper and even referenced his whole deal back with the, the Highgate Vampire. But rumors spread that the two would meet each other in a magician's duel. I love this. Uh, supposedly they were going to battle each other on Parliament Hill on Friday, April 13th, 1973. Friday the 13th These again. guys love Friday the 13th. They love it. But uh, apparently. Like Harry never, Potter style, yeah. dueling magicians by one. But apparently this never happened. Now, Ferrant was later jailed in 1974 for damaging memorials and disturbing remains in Highgate, uh, crimes which he claims were committed by Satanists and not himself. So that's the Satanist. That sort of wraps up the story, you know, from that. Like, it kind of came to an end in the 70s. You know, was there a vampire lurking around? Was there not a vampire lurking around? Was it ghosts? Was it a haunting? You know, there's a lot going on there. Now, has the vampire returned? Inquiring minds want to know. In 1991, Declan Walsh claimed to witness a very tall, thin man dressed in Victorian style walk right through the locked gate of Highgate Cemetery. We've heard these stories before. 
And in 2005, a witness claimed to see a figure floating from the east to west side of the cemetery. So now Louisa, if I remember correctly, Louisa, the story that I had here was a little shorter than the actual story. Apparently this had happened night after night. And so there were multiple people who witnessed this woman in her dressing gown, you know, wandering through the cemetery. And again, that, that, that story alone, like I said, I mean, that, that was very creepy. Oh yeah. Answering the vampire's call. So, I mean, why was she going out there? Had, you know, she, like you said, she went to that particular mausoleum and ripped off her crucifix and then that booming sound comes from within. Now, what was that? You know, was that the Highgate vampire ready to get her? I'm envisioning him like beating on, you know, a sarcophagus or his coffin. So like I said, a lot of it was ghostly. But there were a couple of stories that are very, very vampiric. So, I mean. What are we dealing with? Yeah, what what was it? Was it a haunting? Was it vampire? I mean, I, I, I like the idea of it being a vampire. I mean, I really do. Being the historian of the group, I tried to find early, early history maybe of the land. or, or no, I, I couldn't find anything. You know, I obviously over here in the United States, you know, oh, it was on an Indian burial ground. Or, you know, <laughs> was there some tragic death, war, something that, that scarred this land. I, I couldn't find anything. So I don't know if you did in any of your research, yeah. but um, but back to the Ferrant and uh, Manchester, as Bill said, these guys just went after each other nonstop, uh, repeatedly about the Highgate vampire, stressing their own role in the exclusion of the other, each attempting basically to control the narrative yeah. of the story. These guys were out trying to get fame. I'm sorry. That's my, that's my Oh, they opinion. were trying to get famous off of this story. And they kept, they kept coming back long after they should have stayed out. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, guys, it's, you know, it's, it's done. Drop it. But no, no, no. They, re, they ongoing animosity, rivalry between the two. Feud continued for decades, marked by insults and vindictiveness until uh, Ferrant's death in uh, April of 2019. Now, uh, in pop culture, you said, is the vampire dead yet? I, I always like to bring in some pop culture. The Highgate Cemetery location was used not only as inspiration, but actually in the filming background for Tales from the Crypt in 1972, From Beyond the Grave, also in 1972, Dracula A.D., which also was from 1972. Now, that's the one, of course, that starred Christopher Lee and, and Peter Cushing. I believe I read that, that the movie, that movie was it. Partially inspired by yes, the story that I gave him. Very much. Which, if you've never seen a Christopher Lee Dracula movie, oh. I, you need to get out there and watch one. That, yeah. Those yeah. old Hammer Dracula films are amazing. Now, the Highgate Vampire appears as a villain in Dark Horse Comics uh, in the series Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 9. Uh, the Highgate Vampire is revealed to be uh, not a vampire, but an insectoid demon that feeds off its victims' uh, emotional trauma. Rupert Giles from the show had nearly been killed by the creature in 1972. Again, this 1972, right during that hoopla, the Highgate vampire became a minion of Drusilla, the character out of uh, Buffy, uh, when it returns to the 2010 era. So what were we dealing with? Demons, ghosts, apparitions, vampires, maybe all of the above. Definitely. It sounds like a haunted location. Uh, several decades of pretty well documented stories. But um, no firm belief, no firm history and origin story for a vampire or vampires, if it happened to be more than one. Yeah. We'll let you decide. So here's our nightmare headline for the week. 
Take it away, Bill. From the Mirror, October 31st, 2022. Here's the headline. Real-life vampire sleeps in coffin and dreams of opening a hotel in Transylvania. <laughs> I like the guy's name, Andreas Bathroy. Oh, Bathroy. Uh, he claims to be a real vampire, and he talks about how life in Transylvania and how real vampires are much different from the fiction we're all familiar with. Andreas previously revealed in an interview that he was contacted by the Lord warlord Vlad Zepesh in a dream. Well, we've talked about him before. Oh, that yes. would be Count Dracula. The true inspiration of Dracula. Um and he claims that modern vampire community is focused on the material nature of life and is based upon human instincts. But we here in Transylvania for many centuries are searching for more than merely human nature and human desires and lusts. So Transylvania must be a special place for vampires. So, I mean, it should be, right? It's Transylvania. Right. Now, he follows many traditions that are common to vampire lore, but he says he does not drink blood and discourages its practice due to its danger as a health risk. <laughs> and as a danger, as a spiritual practice, which I assume the consuming of other people's blood is is bound to do damage to one's soul. So what do they eat? Well, it doesn't really say. <laughs> he says blood is not necessary for a vampire to survive, but more serves as a metaphor representing the living force of life. I mean, that's worse than a vegan vampire, a, uh, a vegan person. I don't know. Uh, he also does not fear sunlight, crosses, garlic, or mirrors. So at what point in time do you draw the line between vampire and not vampire? He does, however, enjoy sleeping in a coffin. So, so that's pretty much all I'm hearing. Brings him close to his vampire roots. He likes to sleep in a coffin. He doesn't drink blood. Now, he does plan to open a small hotel for vampires in Transylvania. Well, if you're so going to open got, one, he's as got you said, that's the place. Now, he says there are many hierarchies of varying levels of evolution within the vampire community. Some of those are very close to human nature. Others are born with the ability to take energy from other people. Many saw doing so subconsciously. If you watch What We Do in the Shadows, Colin Ferguson. <laughs> Which I, I'm not, again, we don't get sponsored by anything, but I, I strongly advocate what we do in the shadows, the original movie and the TV series. They're both really funny. I don't know if you've seen any of those. I've watched a few of them. Now, some follow vampirism as a spiritual path, and there are those with very real gifts and powers of a higher vibration, and they recede from the public because their vibration is so different from the rest of the world. But now get this. This is the part that I found interesting. He also claims that in Transylvania, there are the Moroi and the Strigoi, the living dead. And this happens when an undead entity from the unseen world inhabits the body of the recently deceased, and they come back to feed on the life force of humans, blood. It's not primarily blood as a motivator, but they, that is how they survive. And the Strigoi, of course, that come off of the uh, comic, later TV series, I'm trying to think of the name of it, uh, The Strain. Oh, yeah, yeah. So apparently he believes there are actual vampires. Now he claims there are many vampires like himself moving through society undetected. And here's a, a quote by, by old Andreas. Humans playing vampires and vampires playing humans is a true state of affairs in our world. And many real vampires, when they move in and through society, they will never be seen. This is their strength. So I don't know if he ever opened his hotel. This was back in October. But, but I hope that he does. I hope he opens a hotel for That'd vampires. Don't know how much business he'll get. But. Well, on that note, and upon your challenge, challenge accepted, I have something. To oh, add. You've, you've got a headline. I've got a headline. All right. It's a somewhat of a headline. Airbnb, we're all familiar. You <laughs> take vacations. Well, if you go to Airbnb, you can actually stay in a vampire-themed Airbnb. Uh, this is the Lockwood Mansion Carriage House out of the Vampire Diaries TV series. Uh -huh. There is a, It's two guests, one bedroom um, and one bath. And uh, it says, welcome to Lockwood. 
home of one of the founding families of Mystic Falls, you'll be adding yourself to the guest list with the likes of Damon and Stefan Salvatore, uh, among others. Uh, the entire property was authentic stage set for the hit television show uh, Vampire Diaries for eight years. Now, this is actually located in uh, Covington, Georgia, and you can stay there for $575 a night. Well, that kind of vampiric. Well, vampiric. Feels like they're sucking the blood right out of your wallet. It kind of sounds like those other two guys. <laughs> Five hundred dollars. Five seventy-five. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed yet another installment of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Brian Bourne was walking his dog uh, before heading out to a party. This would be ancestor of Evan Brian Evan Bourne. Was no, who's the Bourne? Bourne identity. Oh, uh, forget it. It's a bad joke. We'll cut that out. (laughs) Jason. Jason Jason Bourne. Bourne. That's it. And although the entities of those, oh, although the entities of uh, the enti- would like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Ravens Loft. That's our family shop here, located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, final records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in, kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.